Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Saturday, June the 11th, 2022. It is currently 9.30 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Now, yes, it's Saturday evening, and I don't know... I don't know what you do on your Saturday evenings. I, I I hope. I I guess I'm naive to think this because I know I did not always accomplish this in my own Christian life. I guess as a I I would like to envision, and, and maybe maybe you agree with this, maybe you don't, maybe you maybe you, you would like to envision it as well. But but I think the reality is it doesn't really happen. I would always like to imagine that on Saturday evening, Christians all around the world are preparing themselves for Sunday morning, for Sunday for Sunday school, for Sunday worship. They may be reading the text and studying the text that they know is going to be preached on if you know what's next. Yeah, they may, may be working on what they need to be, you know, whatever the Sunday school lesson has been is going to be that they're they're doing some reading, they're doing some studying, they're doing some preparing. Not only preparing their minds, they're preparing themselves spiritually. They're praying, praying for the church service, praying for themselves, praying for their attitude, praying for the attitude of everyone else. There's just a, a time of spiritual preparation for, okay, <laughs> someone uh, just said, I'm working the night shift at the hospital, but I'm listening to you. Well, that I do appreciate that wherever you're listening. But I, I, I like to imagine that on Saturday nights, people are preparing. That, that's what for Sunday. I know the reality is it doesn't always happen because let's be honest, we... There's a lot going on sometimes, and there's a lot of things we want to do on a Saturday evening, and we start doing this, and we start doing this, and there's things we want to watch, and there's things we want to listen to, and there's places we want to go, and then before you know it, it's time to go to bed. Then you wake up, and then you rush to church, and in many cases, you show up not spiritually prepared. In many cases, you're not even physically prepared, uh, but you show up, and then sometimes that, that can greatly impact how a Sunday morning goes. But I would like to imagine people are preparing, but whatever you may be doing, if for those, or if you're at work, whatever you may be doing this Saturday evening, if you're listening live, hopefully for the next few minutes, okay, for a lot of minutes, we can have, I guess, I don't know what we're going to call this. It's going to be kind of a, I guess, kind of a devotional thought, kind of just uh, just throwing out some spiritual nourishment on a Saturday evening that hopefully will be beneficial to you. But but if you can, I would just like to, ch- I don't want to turn this into the entire lesson, but if you can put into practice and, and set up some things you can do on Saturday evenings to prepare yourself, to prepare your church for Sunday morning, I think it would benefit everyone. It would benefit the people preaching and teaching. It would benefit the people attending. And of course, it would benefit you. So um, yeah, so someone said, yeah, I'll probably go more than 60 minutes. I'm going to try not to because I know there's no way I can do this in one part. I should have labeled this part one, I, I, but I didn't. I, I don't know why I didn't. I should have, but I'm not. Uh, I don't know. We're going to stop whenever I feel like we need to stop. That, that's what we're going to do. But are you ready? Let's begin by, well, let's begin by looking at a text of scripture. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 verse t- uh, 10 I know everyone knows this passage, but let's just begin there. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord 
and in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, that passage has sparked uh, so many, uh, the imagination of so many pastors and Bible teachers, and, and even, I think, Christians, this idea, okay, okay, this armor, we, we understand physical armor. We can imagine what physical armor looks like. In fact, in many cases, many preachers will give some kind of a an actual object les- lesson trying to show you what the, the, so- the armor of a Roman soldier would have looked like. And like, we need to put on that kind of armor. And we really think about it in a very and in a very visual way and it sparks lots of imagination and but there's a lot sometimes it can be still a little bit ambiguous of exactly okay, exactly how do I put this on exactly how this works i think there's i think there's a lot of discussions that happen there where i think a lot of people may say oh i understand it but when you really push them okay what does that really mean what does it really look like i think i think it's not always as clear as everyone may think that it is. But I don't want to get into a major discussion about how to put on the armor. I want to raise a different idea. I want to raise kind of a, a, I guess, a hypothetical question, all right? It's this. Is it possible to put on the armor of God if we have not taken off the armor of self? Is it possible to put on the armor of God if we have not removed the armor of self? And is it possible that the armor of self is very damaging to us spiritually? Have you ever considered the concept of the armor of self? That you wear this armor, the self armor, and that in many cases it actually hinders your spiritual growth, and makes you very vulnerable from a spiritual perspective. I've never given this much thought, never even considered the idea, don't know if I've I've even ever read anything about the idea, or if I have, I've forgotten, I've read, you know, a lot of things over the time, over time, but I came across an article that was published on June the 6th, 2022. I saved it to my notes. It's been one that I've wanted to get to, but there's always so many things to talk about. So I thought this evening, kind of for devotional time, kind of just to try to just get our minds on the things of God this Saturday evening, hopefully to help you prepare for Sunday morning, we can discuss this idea, the armor of God and the armor of self or the armor of me. Just, you know, but I'm referring to me, myself, and you, yourself. The armor of self. That's why I'm calling it the armor of self. In the article, they refer to it as the armor of me, but I'm seeing the armor of self so that everyone understands what we are speaking of. The headline is this To put on the armor of God, we have to take off the armor of me. To put on the armor of God, we have to take off the armor of me. Now, right underneath that, okay, that's the headline. And then right underneath that, in much smaller print, the very first three words in the smaller print is a name. Let's see if you're familiar with this name, all right? I'm going to turn the volume up. I'm going to play this name. Are you familiar with this name? Listen carefully. 
Therese of Lisia. Therese of Lisia. Therese of Lisia. Therese of Lisia. Are you familiar with that name? Therese of Lisia. Now, I'm not going to go into the history of her, and I'm definitely not saying we would agree with all of her theology, but Therese of Lisia seems to be, I guess, the origin of some of the thoughts in this article. Therese of Lisia. Therese of Lisia. Of Lisia, if I can speak correctly. Losing my voice. All right, Therese of Lysia, this is what they have to say. So to put on the armor of God, we have to take off the armor of me. Therese of Lysia teaches us to to have childlike faith and stop protecting our vulnerabilities. Therese of Lysia teaches us to have childlike faith and stop protecting our vulnerabilities. So if we have the armor of self or the armor of me is where we protect our vulnerabilities, if I can say the word correctly, we protect where we feel vulnerable, where we feel weak, where we don't want to be exposed. So we protect that. And by doing that, it seems to be argued here that if we don't, if we, if we continue to protect our vulnerabilities, then we cannot put on the armor of God. So we simply have the armor of self, and that's how we're moving forward in the Christian life, wearing the armor of self that is designed to protect us, our vulnerabilities, to protect that, where the armor of God is designed to protect, well, against the fiery darts of the devil to help us in our spiritual war. The armor of self is to help me from, I don't know, being revealed, being exposed, so, because we're trying to protect our vulnerabilities, is that where this article is going to go? I'm, I'm asking a lot of hypothetical questions because I'm trying to get you to think. But I still think this concept is an interesting question. If I have an armor of self on, does that prevent me from putting on the armor of God? Let's see what they have to say here. This is how this article begins. I have a Bible from my youth. One I purchased for myself when I was in middle school. I underlined a number of verses during those formative years of adolescence. Flipping through the pages now, I see a common thread in the passages I singled out. They are predominantly calls to action. The instructional sections that mapped out out an identifiable way for me to feel I was doing enough to satisfy God. All right. This is setting up kind of an idea. And this person, when they were young and their adolescents, they had a Bible and they went through and they outlined and they circled or, or they, they outlined or I'm sorry, they highlighted, I should say, they highlighted a number of verses and what it looks like that there was a kind of a, there was a thread in all of the passages that they singled out, all of the passages that they, uh, they underlined or they highlighted. And these were predominantly calls to action. They they highlighted verses that were like, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And I can remember being young in my Christian faith, and I know that those were like, do this, do this, I'm going to 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 memorize this, I'm going to read this, I'm going to study this, I'm going to pray, I'm going to do that, I'm I'm do, do, don't, and, and I had a lot of don't do this, 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 don't do this. I think for me... I had less verses highlighted that said do, and I had a far more verses highlighted saying don't. But it was very much a do, don't kind of concept. 
I will argue, I think from a theological perspective, much more a very legalistic approach. Now, I'm not saying the do's and the don'ts are not there. I'm just saying, let's say a very law-based approach to Christian life. And this person felt that they had all of this mapped out and all of this highlighted to to map out an identifiable way for them to feel like they were doing enough to satisfy God. It was almost like, okay, I've become a Christian. Now I have to satisfy God. I have to please God. Almost like God is is the parent. Now, you know, I've become a Christian. I'm I'm still a teenager and I've got to please God. You know, God is the heavenly father. I have to please him, have to please him, and very much kind of a a performance-based mindset. I I think probably a lot of us have ended up there at times in our Christian life. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is that damaging? Again, asking lots of questions. Let's see where they go with this. One of my greatest reoccurring anxieties is the possibility that I might in some way not be taking my sin seriously enough, or one of my greatest, at looking back, this person writing, looking back to that time in their adolescence when they were out, or I keep saying outlining, highlighting and underlining. I don't do a lot of highlighting and underlining. I do outlining. So when I see underlining or highlighting, I just immediately say, no, you should have been outlining, okay? That's what you should have been doing, okay? But they were underlining and highlighting, which is perfectly okay. I'm not condemning you if you're an underliner and a highlighter. I'm not. I just tend to outline instead of highlight and underline because I don't really know what that's supposed to do for me. But okay, all right, but that's okay. But at times I will tell people to uh, underline or to mark or put in or circle it when I preach, but I'm usually doing that for, well, outlining purposes because I'm trying to emphasize a key word or a key phrase or the hermeneutical key as we discuss. But all right, so if I keep, say, outlining, you know that in the context of this article, it actually means highlighting and underlining. I have to keep looking back at the phrase because I'm like, you said it wrong, okay? I'm telling the author that I don't know what they're talking about. Here we go. But according to the, the author, one of their greatest reoccurring anxieties is the possibility that they might in some way not be taking sin seriously enough. Now, that sounds ultra-spiritual, but it is more fear-driven than pious. I review just not my actions, but every internal agenda, and I come up with the same conclusion as Jeremiah. The heart is a convoluted mess. I scrape my mind for any residue of wrong that might need to be confessed and eradicated, only to discover new twisted layers underneath. Pulling the lid off my soul felt like staring into a bottomless pit of horrors. Now, that is well-written and very descriptive. So, I don't know about you. I cannot speak for your spiritual journey, your spiritual uh, your spiritual path. And I know you're, what does this have to do with the armor of me? I think you can see where this is starting to develop. Are you seeing kind of where it's going? Okay, let, let, before we get there, let, let's go back and look at this. All right, so we have someone who, they're young, adolescents, they have their Bible. They start underlining. They start highlighting scriptures. And when they look back now and see all of those scriptures they highlighted, they realize there was kind of a pattern being developed. And it was all these action passages. Do this, do this, do this. And looking back, they realize that they highlighted all of that because they felt like they needed to do something in order to 
please or satisfy God. They were going to satisfy God. They were going to please God. They were going to be godly. They were going to be holy. They were going to be the best Christian possible. I, I'm, now I'm, 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 I'm speculating a little bit and I'm placing a little bit of my younger self in here because I wanted to do the same thing. I was like, look, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the best Christian. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to know the Bible better than everyone else. I'm going to do this. 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 And I can't say one of my greatest anxieties was that I wasn't taking my sin serious enough. I think I had a great anxiety for any sin or any failure because in my mind, any sin or any failure meant the end. It's over. It's done. Just give up. It's over. So it was like, I, I have to be perfect. I have to be perfect. I have to be perfect. I don't, I don't think I truly yet understood. I don't know if I ever understood God's grace till maybe even in the last few years, I'm just beginning to, to truly grasp it. And you say, man, it took you a long time. It did, all right? But, and and I, I could talk about theological reasons and how I was taught, but let's read this. So I want you to this paragraph again because it's so powerful and I think it's so beautiful, all right? So this person says, one of their greatest reoccurring anxieties is the possibility that I might in some way not be taking my sins seriously enough. Now that sounds ultra spiritual, but it's more fear-driven than pious. Now, sometimes we... I think this is one of the problems. So many times in our Christian life, we do something that sounds so spiritual. It looks spiritual. It may get praised by Christians all around you saying, oh, wow, you, you know, that's godly, that's spiritual. But sometimes what appears to be pious, sometimes what appears to be spiritual, in many cases, it's not. It's not. It's actually not as spiritual as we think that it is. In, in their, this particular case, they say it sounds ultra-spiritual, but it is more fear-driven than pious. I review not just my actions, but every internal agenda. And I come to the same conclusion as Jeremiah. The heart is a convoluted mess. I scrape my mind for any residue of wrong that, that might need to be confessed and eradicate only to discover new twisted layers underneath. Pulling the lid off my soul felt like staring into a bottomless pit of horrors. And you know, that's what it's like. When, when you're a young Christian, you're like, okay, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to please God. I'm going to love God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And it just seems like no matter how much you eradicate, no matter how much bad you scrape out, you keep finding more and more and more and more. The infection is so deep. It's, it's like no matter how much cancer I remove, there's more cancer. No matter how much sin I try to repent of and not do, I find more and I find more. And, but at the same time, I'm being told by Christians, no, 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 no. You've got power. You can just stop. Basically, you can just stop sinning. Now, they would never say you can be perfect, but they sure sold it that way. And at some point, you're just like, what? What's the problem? So you either have to either, listen, find some armor to cover it all up. To, to not let everyone know how vulnerable, sinful, wicked, struggles, doubts, fears, anxiety, lust, bitterness. No, 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 no. You got to put on your armor. You got to put on the armor of you to protect you from those vulnerabilities. So then instead of putting on the armor of God, you substitute the armor of God for the armor of me to protect 
what's really going on inside, which is utterly devastating to one's spiritual life. Let's see if they go in that direction. It never occurs to me in the middle of all the soul scrubbing that perhaps part of what God desires for me is freedom from the self-loathing and cruel harshness that tries to pass itself off as making it as making me more like him. The very self-admonishment I equate with holiness is in fact distorting my perception of God. Now, listen to that carefully. They say they never stop to think about, well, wait a minute, in the middle of all this soul scrubbing, perhaps part of what God desires for me is freedom from the self-loathing and cruel harshness that tries to pass itself off as making me more like him. The very self-admonishment I equate with holiness is in fact distorting my perception of God. Is it possible that the more we struggle, the more we try, and the more we hate ourselves and hate ourselves and hate ourselves, that it really can, well, as they say, distort your perception of God. Now, I'm not saying we should not loathe our sin and hate our sin. But I think we have to find a balance in there, right? Because if we don't find a, put it this way, that seems such a law-based approach. And I don't think a law-based approach ever accomplishes anything other than total, complete despair, total discouragement. Because no matter how much you scrub, no matter how much you clean, no matter how much you renounce, no matter how much you repent, you always find more and more and more and more and more and more. And you say, woe is me, I am undone, because you're never going to get all of the sin out until glorification. Now, now the danger is you can just say, well, you know, no one's perfect, I'm a sinner, and we just become comfortable with it. It's like, we don't, comfortable is not right. Total despair is not right. There's got to be a biblical approach that has to be more grace-based than law-based. Let's see where they go with this. Pursuing the path of taking full responsibility for my sin only pushes me towards despair because I find that the problem is deeper and more pervasive in me than I can begin to address. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me, Romans 7.21. I'm unable to discern my true motivations with certainty. The more I dissect my confessions, the less adequate they seem pulling me further down the rabbit hole of introspection. And that's what happens. The more, the more you try, the more, the more you try to figure it out, you just go further and further into despair. And then you start questioning, what is my motivation? Am I really trying to serve God or am I trying to do it for my own motivation? And wait a minute, I confessed it to God, but was my confession real? And I think I repented, but was my repentance real? And I don't really know. And, I, and then sooner or later, you just like, forget this forget this. I, I, th- this just doesn't work. This is just, you just feel like it's, it, there's just no point. You just, here, just, I'm going to hand in my, my badge. I'm handing in it all here. Just take it all because I don't know. No, it's not working. Now what's bizarre is when the one person has reached the point of despair and want to give up, everyone else seems to be like, Hey, it's good. Christianity's great. He's like, but you don't, you either think they never struggle with sin, and then you find out that they actually do, but for some reason they're not as bothered about it by you. So then you start maybe thinking that, you know, then it just gets all confusing. Let's see where they go with this. My attempts 
to fully own my sin end up competing with my ability to accept what Christ did on my behalf. Ooh, this just got deep. My attempts to fully own my sin end up competing with my ability to accept what Christ did on my behalf. Sometimes we, I'm going to own my sin, I'm going to deal with my sin, and I'm just going to focus on my sin, and we get so focused on the sin. I'm going to use this terminology, the article does not. We get so focused on the practical, our practical standing before God, the practical reality of unrighteousness and sin in our life. We try to take responsibility. We, We pursue righteousness with everything in us. We try and we try and we try. But at some point, that can become such the focus that we completely forget to accept what Christ has done on my behalf. What Christ has done for me is died for all of my sins. What Christ has done for me, he's given me his obedience because he knows my life is going to be constantly filled with disobedience. So in him, I'm obedient. Yes, in practice, I'm disobedient, but in him, I'm obedient. He's going to give me perfect righteousness because he knows I'm never going to achieve perfect righteousness. He's going to impute holiness because he knows I'm never going to achieve holiness. So while we're out there struggling and fighting and frustrating, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Either we start pretending that we are, which, which is really messed up, or we find ourselves totally in despair. And that despair, in many cases, causes us to not accept what Christ has done on our behalf. He went to the cross precisely because we are all incapable of taking full responsibility for our own sin. In other words, we are incapable of really taking full responsibility for our sin. We are incapable of purging it out, cleansing it out, eradicating it and everything. And you can claim that we have the power of God to do it, but obviously the power of God is not is if you're saying that it's active in us, it's not sufficient to make us perfect, so we're still going to sin. And this can cause us to become so preoccupied with our present our our practice, our, our our the practical reality of our Christian life, we forget to accept the reality of our position. We no longer rest in it, we are no longer grateful for it. Martin Luther addressed the fallacy of such thinking. And I quote, I'm quoting Martin Luther. This attitude springs from a false conception of sin. The conception that sin is a small matter, easily taken care of by good works, that we must present ourselves unto God with a good conscience, that we must feel no sin before we may feel that Christ was given for our sins. See, it's, it's this idea somehow that, that we don't, if we really saw the seriousness of our sin, if we really saw, that, now now look, we everyone's got those big, oh, oh wait, you committed the big one. Okay, everyone knows, everyone's got the big ones and then that's the end, you know, take them out and crucify them. But if we saw every sin as this cosmic treason against the eternal God, if we saw the smallest sin that way, we would realize our utter helplessness, 
hopelessness, that all of the striving in the world, that we, are, we, are, we would realize how utterly messed up we are. And then we would realize my only hope cannot be in my striving. My only hope cannot be in my trying to purge myself. My only hope is in what Christ did. But somehow we, we, we have to minimize sin so that somehow we, we can convince ourselves we're doing more than we actually are. The alternative to being responsible is not being irresponsible. It is trusting God with the responsibility the way a child trusts a parent with their care. So it's not that we become irresponsible about, it, about our sin, but we trust God with the responsibility. You're like, Lord, here, here, here you go. Here, here's it all. Here it is. It's yours. It's yours. I have to trust you with it because I can't fix it. I can't, I can clean and clean and clean and purge and purge and purge and more sin, more sin, more sin, more sin. Now I can convince myself. No, I see this is the game we play. We can convince ourselves, oh, I'm pretty righteous and I'm good. I'm not like, I'm not like other people. Now we won't say those words because, you know, well, there's a parable about that. So we won't say, I thank God I'm not like them. But in reality, we do think that we're not like them. We do think we're not like those ungodly people in the world. We're not like those ungodly people. And you hear this all the time. Even within Christianity, if someone does A, B, C, D, well, they probably, they're probably not a Christian. They're probably not saved. Whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. So they did those acts and they're not saved, but you can do your things and you are saved. So you minimize your sin and maximize theirs. And sometimes I think the reason we're so worried about theirs is because it takes the attention off ours. Amen. Oh, me. Right? So it's not that we become irresponsible. It's that we trust God with the responsibility. God has to take care of my sin. God has to take care of it all. Just like a child trusts a parent with their care. Now, I, not all children can trust their parents with care because there's, there's lots of people grow up. You can't trust your parents with anything. You don't even know if they're going to be there when you wake up in the next morning. So, so if that, if that doesn't work for your situation, just know you can't, God is a parent you can trust. If you cannot trust your earthly parents, you can trust God and you can trust him with your sin. Now, people may act like you're being irresponsible and you're excusing your sin. No, you're realizing that you, you're, you're being responsible because the only responsible thing to do is to give it to God because you, or either you have to pretend, cover yourself in some fake self-righteousness, or minimize your sin, and none of those are good options. In his book, Exploring OCD and Faith, Ian Osborne shares the story of, does everybody remember her name? Does everyone remember her name? Do you? Therese of Lysia. Therese of Lysia. Therese of Lysia. Do you remember that name? In his book, Exploring OCD and Faith, Ian Osborne shares the story of Therese of Lysia. Therese was born in the late 19th century. She was about as thoroughly religious as someone can be. She received her education in a Benedictine school, then went on to become a Carmelite nun. Carmelites maintain a very strict lifestyle, praying for long hours every day, enduring very aesthetic conditions, and observing complete silence for extended periods. 
If anybody, if anyone exemplified diligent working to put on their own armor, it was Therese. Right? So born in the 19th century, she was educated in a Benedictine school. She became a Carmelite nun, and she had a, a hours of praying, enduring aesthetic conditions, very, very rough conditions to try to, you know, make you more spiritual, observing complete silence for extended period of times. If, if anyone was putting on their armor, it was Therese. She was putting on an armor. She was putting on an armor. And I think a lot of times what we do is we go out and we try to do this and do this and do this. And reality, we're just putting on an armor because we're trying to do enough good that we can put on an armor that, that to protect us and to keep our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses and our sins to never be seen. See, if I do if I, if I do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, then I've got enough armor that people can't see all of my failure and all of my weaknesses and all my vulnerabilities. Hey, I read the Bible. I study the Bible. I memorize the Bible. I listen to sermons. I go to church. I spend hours in front of a microphone talking about God. All of that just becomes an armor to cover the real me, which is never as godly as that armor makes everyone think that I am. Oh, come on. Don't don't go, ooh, he's got problems. No, I'm talking about you too. Right? Right? Maybe? Okay, maybe not? Okay, here we go. Despite her devotion, despite her devotion, uncontrollable doubts and fears haunted her. She tried performing severe acts of self-punishment to counter what was happening in her mind, but her effort provided no comfort. I'm sorry, the article just disappeared. Okay. Despite her devotion, uncontrolled doubts and fears haunted her. She tried performing severe acts of self-punishment to counter what was happening in her mind, but the effort provided no comfort to her conscience. Unable to find any method of alleviating her mental distress, Therese concluded she needed a fundamentally different approach to God. After much prayer and reflection on scripture, she developed what she came to call the little way. Now, make it very clear. Don't agree with everything Therese, Therese of Lysia did. I, by no means am I agreeing with everything she came up with or every plan, but she serves as another person in history who was devoted, 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 but just things still, they, they knew something wasn't right inside. Luther was another person who just, you know, he, he just he never felt, he just constantly was in confession, constantly didn't know what to do. And I think that this, this can, if we're honest with ourselves, this should be there. But I think what we tend to do is try to cover it up with, a, well, with an armor of self. Let's see what what they say here. It was a radical departure from the rigid moralism of her time. She focused on all the verses that portrayed God caring for the small and humble, like Matthew 18, 3. I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therese concluded that God's primary request of her was to remember her own smallness. 
Rather than cultivating self-sufficiency, she sought to adopt the attitude of a young child relying on a parent for everything. She realized, she went and found every scripture, again, that God, where God, in fact, let me find it, uh, that portrayed God caring for the small and humble. She found a, of all the scriptures of God caring for the small and humble. And she focused on that, and she basically came to the conclusion what God requires of her well, is to be small and humble, to be like a child relying on a parent for everything. Realize she has to rely on God for everything. She can't rely on herself. She can't rely on her self-efforts. She can beat herself. She can go without food, sleep. She can sleep on a cold, hard floor. She can do all these things. It, it's not going to fix it. What, what she, she has to rely on God because she, re, she knows deep down what she is. She has doubts, anxiety, bitterness, frustrations, lust, whatever was going on inside of her. She couldn't just cover it up. And many Christians are very good to put on the facade. I, I, I tend to call it fig leaves, but they refer to this as the armor of self. It's put on, I, I think fig leaves are more there to just, I, well, it's still there to cover up your, you don't want to be exposed. You're, you're covering yourself up. I think it's the same thing. We put on an armor to protect ourselves. We don't want anyone to see. And so there's a bunch of Christians not running around in the armor of God. They're running around in the armor of self, simply to protect ourselves from our vulnerabilities, to make everyone think that we're more godly than we are. And guess what? Sooner or later, it all comes out. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe not for everyone, but sooner or later, the, the sin is shown. I mean, look what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, just, I mean, over and over and over. And then, and then of course, what many people, well, they were not saved, they're not saved, they're not saved, they're not saved. Or maybe they are saved, but there's sin in their life. I know that's a shock. How can it be? Because we've been so conditioned that no, 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 New Testament Christians, we get the power of God. We can overcome sin, but no, we're still going to sin. The things you want to do are not going to be the things you do, and the things you don't want to do are going to, things, are going to be the things you end up doing. We can't excuse it. But we got to stop pretending like somehow that's not the reality. The reality is the church has been, is, and will forever be filled with sinful people who sin. Maybe they don't commit the sin that you think is the, the unforgivable one. Maybe they will only commit the smaller ones. But sooner or later, oh, well, right there, why do we call them smaller ones? Therese concluded that God's primary request of her was to remember her own smallness rather, rather than to cultivate self-sufficiency. She sought to adopt the attitude of a young child relying on a parent for everything. Initially, the little way sounds as if it goes against everything young Christians are taught about healthy discipleship. Scripture admonishes, admonishes us to grow up in every way and to not be infants tossed back and forth with every wind of doctrine. Where does maturity come into play if we're staying small? Teresa's point was not to encourage us to stay stuck in some kind of stunted development, but to remain in a state of total dependence. Rather than working hard to move past the need for more grace, we embrace our perpetual reliance on it. Let me read that again. Teresa's point was not or Therese or Teresa's point was not to encourage us to stay stuck in some kind of stunted development, but to remain in a state of total 
dependence. Rather than working hard to move past the need for more grace, we embrace our perpetual reliance on it. You are in a perpetual need for grace. You are in a perpetual need for forgiveness. You are in a perpetual need for an imputed righteousness because your practical righteousness is always going to fall short. You are in a perpetual need for the blood of Jesus Christ. You're in a perpetual need for his obedience being imputed to your account because you will never be obedient enough. You will never be holy enough. You'll never be righteous enough. You'll, you live in a perpetual state of failure. You live in a perpetual state of sin practically, but you have to then just rely on the fact and acknowledge that fact and trust in an imputed righteousness. Now, some will refer to this as a weak Christianity. Some will try to refer to it as an easy believism and say, no, if you don't do this and this and this, you are never saved. But that idea always falls short because you have to then start grading on a curve or you start pretending that you're being more obedient than you actually are. And again, you put on armor. And you put and you you put forth certain actions as if, see, I'm not vulnerable to anyone calling into question my salvation, but the other things are inside, and you can't acknowledge. You can't ever be honest with what's really inside. You can't you can't even truly acknowledge the sinfulness of what's inside of you because you're so relying on the armor of self. What does staying small look like? Arthropia Melody identified five essential characteristics that describe the natural state of a child. Vulnerable, every child has inherent worth. Vulnerable, children need care and protection. Imperfect, learning and making mistakes are part of growing up. Dependent, children should not need to fend for themselves. Immature expectations need to be age appropriate. So here's some things about children. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. I, I, th- I said both of them vulnerable. I'm sorry. Number one, valuable. Every child has inherent worth. All right. So if we're going to have this idea of, of approaching our Christian life as we're children and we have to rely on our Heavenly Father, the first thing we see that we're valuable and that we have worth because obviously we're created in the image of God and God sent his son to die for us. And by faith, he gives us his righteousness. We are adopted into the family of God. Okay, we're, we're, we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. There's, we're, we're the temple of the living God. On and on and on. There's value, all right? So we're valuable. Second, we're vulnerable. Children need care and protection. We, we constantly need care and protection. We need the care and protection of God's holiness, of God's righteousness, because we, well, we're, we're doomed without it, right? So valuable, vulnerable, imperfect. Learning and making mistakes are part of growing up. Learning and making uh, mistakes is a part of being a Christian, and it's going to be a part of your entire Christian life. It doesn't mean we just excuse it. But we have to realize we are imperfect, we will be imperfect, and we will continue to be imperfect until glorification. Dependent. Children should not need to fend for themselves. A child should not fend for themselves, and we as Christians should not either. We are dependent upon God, his righteousness, his holiness. Because anything else, well, well, we're going to fall short. Immature expectations need to be age appropriate. There's always going to be a level of immaturity in us because we're never truly going to reach 
the state of true spiritual maturity until glorification. Now, we should be growing, and there should be an expectation in our spiritual growth that, okay, but even even in spiritual maturity, you can end up doing some really foolish things. All these characteristics translate equally well to describe what it looks like to live as God's children. Do we believe we are of great value to him? Can we acknowledge and accept our vulnerability? Could we allow our imper- could we allow our imperfection? What about choosing to count on God instead of feverishly attempting to measure up? And and are we able to show grace to ourselves knowing our faith is still developing and we do not yet see what we will become? It was C.S. Lewis who said, when I become a man, I put away child, when I, when I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. That's pretty interesting, right? When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and a desire to be very grown up. Spiritual maturity never means independence. And God does not call us to count on our own self-protection. Instead, he offers us something completely different. Then they quote from Isaiah. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one who was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Here, the armor of God is worn by none other than God himself. He puts it on to bring the salvation nobody else could make happen. It is rescue. It is powerful. It is swift and sure. The armor represents God's action on our behalf. Now, I think this is interesting. The armor represents God's action on our behalf. Armor of self is our actions on our behalf. The armor of God is God's actions on our behalf. Armor of self is my actions on my behalf to make me look good, to protect me, to make sure no one sees how messed up I am, to put forth this idea because because I'm protecting my ego. I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want shame. The armor of God is like, hey, This is God's actions on my behalf because I am messed up. I am a sinner. I am a failure. I do let God down. But this is what God has done on my behalf. Do we see the armor of God as God's, well, work on my behalf? I have multiple options I go to regularly when I'm in self-preservation mode. I call it the armor of me, which includes the belt of denial the breastplate of humor, feet ready with a plan of escape, the shield of perfectionism, the helmet of avoidance, and the sword of blame. My armor has many additional elements God doesn't offer, such as the shoulder pads of delusion, the face mask of people-pleasing, and the shin guards of distraction. That's powerful stuff, all right? I have multiple options I go to regularly when I'm in self-preservation mode. Self-preservation mode. That's where the armor of self is all about. It's about self-preservation. Preserve your reputation. Preserve your name. Make yourself look good. Preserve, Preserve your ego. Preserve your pride. So listen to some of these things. 
the, the author calls it the armor of me, which includes the belt of denial. Right? Hey, I'm going to put on the, I'm going to deny anything, right? I'm going to deny reality. The breastplate of humor, make a joke about it instead of taking it serious. Fe- feet ready with a plan of escape. I'm going to find some way to escape anything that's going to, that's going to hurt me, right? The shield of perfectionism, the helmet of avoidance, the sword of blame. My armor has many additional elements God doesn't offer, such as shoulder pads of delusion, the face mask of people pleasing, and the shin guards of distraction. Psychologists would refer to these components as feelings, feelings, defenses, ways of shielding ourselves from the pain of difficult emotions. And in times of trauma, they prove incredibly valuable. Feelings defenses are a God-given measure of safety and relief when the world is unbearable. We pick them up when we're very young and they become so ingrained in our, our responses that they almost are instinctual. A threat appears and immediately our defenses are right there to meet it. But over time, they outstay their usefulness. We begin to live in them permanently. They start to shape our choices regardless of the situation. That's when they become armor, a second skin we never shed. The humor that served well to break tension during a quarrel now stands in the way when anyone tries to get close. The happy place in your mind that you go to through a crisis soon occupies all your thoughts and makes real life look even more miserable. The perfectionism that rewarded you with a job well done turns into an unrelenting daily taskmaster. If I'm going to wear the armor of God, I first need to remove the armor of me. I can't hold the shield of perfectionism and the shield of faith at the same time. The belt of truth won't fit if I'm wrapped in denial. I've been trying to wear both to supplement God's armor with a secondary layer of protection. I thought it was helping, and instead it was just, it was just in the way. That means unlearning patterns that have become second nature, right? We're almost done. We're almost done. To return to the little way, staying small means there is a moment of trust required as we let go of the defense systems we've adopted to feel safe and avoided to avoid overwhelming feelings. We hand responsibility for our well-being back to God, our good and loving Father. Once I become aware of all of these defenses I was using, I, st- I started after them with a vengeance. Removing the armor of me became all my all-consuming mission. This quickly took me to a place of self-loathing because I discovered just how tightly I had wrapped my armor around me and how difficult it was to step out of it. I became highly frustrated and ashamed over my lack of progress. The anxiety over attempting to change it intensified. I felt this huge responsibility to fix myself and I couldn't do it. Now, there's far more here that we could, or there's a little bit more here. I'm going to stop. But uh, this is an essay adopted from Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God for the Anxious by J.D. Peabody. All right. So this is just an, this is just a, a, a part, this is part of an, this is a, an excerpt, I think is a good way to describe it, from an essay called Perfectly Suited, The Armor of God from the Anxious Mind by J.D. Peabody. That is what I am referencing, but it's just an excerpt. It's just an excerpt. It's not the whole thing, and I did not conclude it. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not going to conclude. I'm not going to read uh, the rest of it. I'm just going to stop right there. And I'm going to do this because we're at 51 minutes. And I'm going to do something. I'm going to make sure that there isn't any. Um, no one has posted any more comments that I have not seen because this is some really good stuff. And I want to make sure I haven't ignored anybody. No. All right. Armor of self or armor of God. As long as we have the armor of self on, we can't put on the armor of God. And we're spiritually vulnerable. Oh, we may look good. We may convince everyone else that we're good. But all we're doing is protecting ourselves. We're not glorifying God. We're trying to protect ourselves so that we can be glorified. And it's hard. It's hard to take off the armor of self because then people may realize that we're sinners. We're failures. We're messed up. And all we can do is say, you're right. I have messed up. I have sinned. And so many, I can't even count all the different ways I have sinned and failed and let God down and let people down and hurt the name of Christ. I have failed and failed and failed and failed over and over and over and over and over again. Nothing I can do but hand it to God and say, Lord, I am a child, and without you, I'm vulnerable to, well, destruction. And God, as a heavenly father, hands me his imputed righteousness and say, cover yourself in this. Don't cover yourself in self. Here you go. Righteousness, my righteousness, my obedience, my holiness. Now you can rest in that doesn't excuse all my sin. No excuse can ever be made for it. But I can never make up for it. And I can never, I can't just, my own, all I can do is trust in what Christ has done. Armor of God versus armor of self. There's some more of this we may come back to. There's some more we may come back to, but I'm just going to leave it there, right? It's 1024. I'm going to leave it there. There's plenty there to unpack. Plenty. All right. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com. I hate when I end like that because I'm like, man, there, there, there's, there's like a hundred sermons in all of this. There, there, I've got, I can't just forget this. So there's no way I'm going to keep this saved in my notes and we're going to find a way to bring this back in. I don't know where, and I don't know how, and we may look at a, a Teresa of Lizia, uh, uh, the little way we may do a little reading of it. Cause I think it's in public domain. So we could probably do a little bit of that. Like we've done with uh, the imitation of Christ by Thomas the Kempis. Now I'm not saying we're going to agree with everything, just like we don't agree with everything in the imitation of Christ, but it could be a fun exercise. So we may do a little bit of work on that. You can tell me what you think. If you found any of this beneficial or helpful, email me newsif at yahoo.com. I would really love to hear your thoughts on this very important discussion on this Saturday evening, fast approaching Sunday morning. Hopefully we will all have a great Lord's Day. Hope we all will. All right. God bless.